Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Today we're going to discuss something that many of us know little about, but which concerns us all. The mental health of those people that are incarcerated in our prisons. It's been recently shown that the prevalence of mental disorders among prisoners is at least five times the rate as in the general population. And in addition, harsh prison conditions cause even more inmates to experience breakdowns, commit suicide, traumatizing formerly normal prisoners and making them angry, violent, and vulnerable to severe emotional problems. Suicide rates are about nine times as high as in the general population. The impacts of racism, rape, and post-traumatic stress disorders are significant. So how can ACT work to help prisoners behind bars? Today you're going to get the chance to discuss with a very unique psychologist that has spent many years doing just that, Dr. David Brillhart. David is a clinical psychologist specializing in ACT in the forensic and correctional settings. Among his areas of expertise include a 20-month groundbreaking pilot study using ACT as a treatment alternative to anger management with sexually violent persons. David now works at a state psychiatric hospital treating high-risk, special-needs sex offender patients. Working with these difficult populations has afforded David the opportunity to help clients in the community navigate life challenges at his private practice. You can read more about David uh, and what he does on his website, which you can get to by clicking on his name on this week's radio of ACT, Taking Her to Hope. Remember that ACT has three parts. Opening up to whatever is going on inside of you, thoughts, feelings, and sensations. And in this case, that could mean opening up and making room for the reality of the moment, which means not trying to change it. And the second is becoming aware of the difference between actual reality, that is what my senses are are sensing in the moment, as opposed to what my mind is telling me about it. And thirdly, Engaging in action that matters to you. In this case, being incarcerated may seem like your freedom to act has been taken away from you, but clearly we have seen from people like Nelson Mandela when he was imprisoned on Robben Island that there are infinite possibilities to act in matters, in, in ways that matter to you, even if you are locked up. I want to especially welcome you, David. Thank you. Good morning. 
Good morning. Actually, it's afternoon here in Sweden. <laughs> Good morning there. And you are in Oregon. I am in Oregon, correct. So tell, tell me, David, this is, um, this is what most people would consider a really difficult population. So what, what got you interested in it? <laughs> well, you know, I, I wasn't even born yet when President John Kennedy was assassinated back in 1963. But even as a kid, I was fascinated with the fact that one person, and that is if you believe the current U.S. government's theory, could cause such worldwide catastrophic history change in less than six seconds. Mm -hmm. So from from this understanding, I spent, as a kid, weekends in the library poring over books about the assassination and Mm -hmm. trying to understand the mindset of why one person would want to do such a thing. Mm -hmm. So so from that, it led me to the field of clinical psychology, where I eventually earned my doctorate in clinical forensic psychology. And where I've worked in forensic settings that have included adolescents, uh, adult men, sexually violent persons who are civilly committed, and now at a state psychiatric hospital where I work with high-risk special need clients who Mm -hmm. work, coincidentally, this is the same place where the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was made with uh, with Jack Uh Nicholson back in the early 70s. That was a wonderful movie. That was a pretty shocking movie. Yes, and things uh, thankfully have changed quite a bit in the way that we just work with our patients here at the hospital. You know, David, I think that uh, why I you know really appreciate your being on this program is uh, you know when things happen, you know you might look at even the the bomb the bombers bombing now in Boston or or a year ago where yeah. we we had actually a a man who. Uh, uh, killed uh, them with Breivik, who who uh, gunned down uh, many many young people at a Norwegian uh, a political camp, and, and I think it's also often that you know what it's interesting to watch people's reaction that often they tend to demonize these people, right. and right. Uh, and and act as if they were some you know someone that was completely different, almost like a you know a. Uh, uh, from a different planet. And that's why I think it's so important that we uh, really do make an attempt to understand, like you said, the criminal mind. Well, it is it is uh, quite different, and I'm really so thankful that you actually brought up that perspective because these individuals, when they are and have been incarcerated, the law has already judged them. And while it doesn't make sense to the majority of the world of why people would do what they do. Our role as clinicians and working in these settings is not to judge them further and to be just very congruent and be very genuine with them and working with these individuals. Yeah. Do you remember the the poem uh, of Thich Nahan where he writes, um, "I am the ten year old girl who has been raped, and I'm am, I am the the rapist." Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of a lot of truth in what you say, and just bringing in the visual imagery of what you just said comes to mind the sex offender patients that I work with, who uh, what you just mentioned kind of encapsulates their world experience too. Mm-hmm. That we really are all of us capable of really anything, and oh, and that, that's why uh, to judge other people more than or to demonize them is is uh, is not helpful to anyone. Exactly, and I think also just gets in the way with 
helping and moving them forward to maybe a life that is meaningful, even inside locked environments. David, how common is mental health problems for, for prisoners? You know, in the United States alone, the estimates are, are, are very high. At any given time, there are anywhere between 300 to 400,000 people in correctional settings who suffer from some type of a mental illness. And when you consider outside of that in, in the community setting, those who are under correctional uh, control, that number boosts up to nearly half a million people. Wow. Yeah, and, and so you, you think, Joanne, from this perspective, what we've done in the past is really work with these individuals from a cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. in, in essence, working from a way to reduce symptoms. And that's only a Band-Aid temporary approach, as I see it, in working with these very difficult populations to work with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What type of like symptom reduction are you, what was common earlier? <laughs> Anger, to start with A, uh, and even looking from an ACT view, anger is a normal emotion, just like happiness, sadness, anxiety, but individuals have been conditioned from a very young age, at least in the U.S. society, think that anger is bad, and mm-hmm. we look from an ACT view that ACT is a normal emotion. It's what you choose to do with anger mm-hmm. that we focus on in treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it gets more to the root of things. Oh, very much. I think we're doing a disservice if, in working with incarcerated populations, if all that we look at is the symptoms and don't understand the context, you know, what's underneath all of that and address that. Yeah, I think you're right, David. You have far more experience than I do, but I have um, uh, worked with a few violent men, and I've, it, I've, it seems like they have been um, uh, f- uh, had a well, kind of a a feeling phobia. They didn't dare to feel any feelings because they were afraid that they would lead to the aggression. Well, think about that. Running away from what is uncontrollable, your thoughts and feelings, it's scary. And mm-hmm. so the natural instinct is to run far away or to stuff or to avoid altogether. And that creates more suffering in the process. Yeah. So how does ACT approach this problem, David? From the very generalized view of even working with incarcerated individuals, it's about knowing that the law has judged them and our jobs as clinicians is to work on their emotional and psychological needs. Mm -hmm. And from that view, it's about human suffering. Mm -hmm. I mentioned a little bit before that the more that we try to control the uncontrollable, like thoughts and feelings and even situations in front of us, when we try to do that, Mm -hmm. the more suffering that we create for us in the process. So... What I do from an ACT view is to be able to understand and help those clients that I work with to discern what is controllable in their lives because I believe when they can actually, in the moment, make that distinction between what they can control Mm -hmm. versus what they cannot control and then to be willing to let that be and then follow with what's important to them, Mm -hmm. that's a key in helping a way to relieve suffering for for our clients. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that you. I have heard actually why I uh, got your name from a colleague who said you are a very creative person, a very creative, <laughs> and you have developed something called an energy buck. Is that correct? <laughs> that is correct. So tell, tell us how that works. Sure. Well, having worked in 
in correctional settings for some years now, at least in the United States, I know the value of money to to my clients. Money is king with them. And I thought, well, what better way to kind of get a hook in understanding about controllable situations than to use money as an example. Mm -hmm. So what I did is created this mindfulness tracking tool called Energy Box. And it, it works very simply. If you if you wake up every day with $100 of imaginary energy box for you mm -hmm. to spend in whatever way that you want to spend throughout the day, mm -hmm. I'm curious if you are willing to look at those areas in your life where you've spent money, energy bucks, on those things outside of your control. Mm -hmm. So if you think of at the end of the day where you've spent all your energy and you go to bed and the next day you have a, a, a new source of energy, mm -hmm. in tracking this information, it can yield some pretty, pretty specific and mindful ways of being able to help them. Because, for example, from the very simplified view on this, Joanne, if, if you or I could reclaim the energy bucks that we spend on things outside of our control, mm -hmm. how would we spend our energy? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing is when we bring this to the attention in those in incarcerated settings, they overwhelmingly talk about what's really important to them. And whether mm -hmm. they realize it or not, they've just declared what they value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, for some of these guys, they've never even considered what is really important, what truly matters to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this may be the first time that we're actually using that. So mindfulness in the terms of these energy bucks has been and has proven to be quite effective in helping them just delineate that itself. So if we back up a little bit, David, can sure. you explain, uh, so give me an example how that would work. You were, you're given $100 uh, dollars a day, or a, a fan, that's not real money, but Right, it's, it's like monopoly money. Okay. Okay. So, so, what would an example of that be? What, how, how would a person? How would you work with that? Sure, sure. So, what I've done is I've, I've printed these on a template form, you know, for in the denominations of one, five, ten, twenty, and fifty dollar imaginary energy bucks, mm -hmm. and I print them on colored paper, kind of like Monopoly money. Mm -hmm. And and the people with whom I work, they will keep them in their wallet. Uh -huh. And I also have a like a check register to be able to note how much energy bucks you're spending with a beginning balance of $100 of imaginary energy bucks, mm -hmm. how much are you spending on those things that are outside of your control? Like, I'll use myself, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, a recent situation where I found myself giving a lot of energy to someone who uh, doesn't think well of me. Mm -hmm. And when I focus on that and only on that, it takes me away from what I value. So, I can imagine that I maybe spent 20 energy bucks on the day kind of ruminating on that stuff. Mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. well, if I could reclaim that money and realize that this person is going to think whatever they choose to think of me, mm -hmm. in other words, that's an uncontrollable situation, and if I could reclaim my energy back, which I, I believe I can, I would spend that in ways that are more in line with what I value, and that is helping others find a meaningful way of living their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how, how do, do you actually get it back? Or do you say if you, if, if you realize that and you stop ruminating and spend more time, <laughs> what happens to the money? So it, w the beauty of that is even in them being able, or myself being able to notice how I'm spending money, mm -hmm. it, 
it allows me the opportunity and affords me that ability to spend my energy in the ways that truly matter. In other words, the controllable things in my life versus those things I cannot. This is in kind of a simple view. It's just a meaningful way to bring attention of how we're spending our energy. Because I believe we only have a finite amount of energy on a daily basis to spend. Mm. And I want to help people understand that you can spend your energy more wisely if you notice it more succinctly. So how how do you actually, because I know that, I mean, this is a pretty hard thing to understand, like what's controllable and what's not controllable. How do you explain that? One of the ways, uh, another tracking tool that I've created just in the moment is called hands of control. And this mm-hmm. is just a very simplified moment of when you or I or anyone with whom we work is caught up in their stuff, that stuff that's out of their control. I ask them to just plant their feet in the moment mm-hmm. and in an open stance, opening to whatever we have in front of us, extend your right hand open and ask yourself, is this in my control? And then extend your left palm outward or is it out of my control? Mm-hmm. Even in this present moment focus of being able to ask yourself out loud in the moment of what is controllable is a means of being able for you or me or anyone just to take notice instead of being reacted to that. That simple act alone can really bring some freedom in knowing that I have options, you have options with how we choose to live our life, even in those moments where we can't control what other people think or feel or what I think or feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for how does that work then if a person understands that I've now been ruminating and this about something out of my control, would that be something they would understand themselves and um, talk right. to you about? Or That's a, a great question. So on this tracking form that looks like a check register, mm-hmm. when they take the energy bucks challenge for the course of a week, mm-hmm. I'll ask them to bring their tracking form back into group as an example and we'll process every situation, how much they allocated as an energy bucks expense, mm-hmm. and then understand like thoughts and feelings that went along, why they chose to spend whatever dollar amount that they spent. Mm-hmm. I believe there's meaning for that in all of them there. What did they notice? What was going on in and around them? The more awareness that we can bring in the moment to them, the more that we can better equip them in making better decisions in line with what they, what's truly important to them, even in a correctional setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's interesting. So um, do you have any examples of someone you've worked with? Sure. I, I work with both uh, special needs and regular track high-risk sex offenders. And the, the special needs guys are those who have cognitive impairments. And so mm-hmm. in just approaching and working with them from a a more simplified view and in using ACT, it's a matter of uh, using concrete examples or drawing on the dry erase board. So with energy bucks, when I I give them their allocation of 100 energy bucks, I'll do it in just simple $10 notes of energy bucks. Mm -hmm. And for that, they'll have in one envelope representing like a wallet, and then they'll have another envelope where they need to put those that they spend. Mm-hmm. So think for a second, and I had this one client that I've worked with as an example where he understood how much energy he was spending with only 10 of these a day that he could spend on on his energy, and particularly 
those areas that were outside of his control, he came up with his own dollar amount that he spent 10, 20, 30, whatever it was, on something that was outside of his control. And he brought that back into group. And when we processed that in a group the following week, it was a means of the other group members being able to challenge him why he chose to spend that, what that took him away from in terms of what was important to him, and the third piece, what he was willing to do. Mm -hmm. Because these are kind of repeat behaviors that we see over and over again. Mm -hmm. I mentioned anger at the top of our interview. That's one area that we will see a lot. Mm -hmm. And so angered expression of maybe hitting a wall out of frustration. Well, mm -hmm. instead of hitting that wall, and that cost him maybe 50 to 60 energy bucks, and not to mention a broken hand, uh -huh. how, how is he willing to spend his energy if the same situation happens again? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and how do values come up in that? When, uh... that that's uh, one of the the nice byproducts in working with energy bucks because even in asking the question, if you could reclaim your energy bucks back, mm -hmm. how would you spend your energy bucks? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the beauty of this because in doing that, the guys that I've worked with, they will identify things that are really important to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They may not understand it in terms of values, but it's given me a tool to how I can help them navigate their choices Mm -hmm. in terms with what they've just identified as being important to them. Yeah. Could you give us some examples of what they would say was would be important? Ah, exactly. This one client, this is actually as recent as yesterday, he identified in spending his energy box. His family that he had alienated through his criminality and that eventually got him locked up. Mm -hmm. So we look at ways for what what kind of steps can we work towards in building that relationship with your family that you really value? And so we break them down in smaller steps, mm -hmm. you know, writing letters, calling, whatever it may be that is in line with building and rebuilding that relationship. Do you find, David, that uh, values are uh, difficult because um, they, they elicit sorrow and uh, sadness? It's interesting, Joanne, and in working with pretty tough-to-treat clients, a lot of them have never looked at truly what is important to them. Mm -hmm. And some of the times it's even asking that in group might be the first time that they've ever addressed that. Mm -hmm. Sorrow, in my experience, has never been a part, and even working with the high criminal minds has never been a part of a value system. But more importantly, What's underneath that? We don't look at sorrow, but the context of what's behind for you, sorrow. Well, maybe it's a matter of being understood. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a, a means of being validated or mm -hmm. uh, having someone understand them and building that relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, in my experience, I've never heard anyone say, I value hurting others or I value having control of others. No, of course they, not, no. I, I was thinking, you know, if, if they have, uh, you know, say, hurt members of their family or that um, valuing family might elicit those feelings of um, that they have tried to, you know, maybe get away from. Oh, exactly. And so that's, that's an opportunity right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just 
you know, think about from an act perspective. When we are congruent and when we're genuine working with our clients, they respond to the genuineness. They don't feel like they're being judged. Mm-hmm. And to me, it seems like these hard-to-treat individuals, they respond openly and non-defensively when you can build that trust in them and being able to help them craft choices, particularly mm-hmm. those choices that are in their control, even in the midst of an environment where they feel control has been taken away from them. Mm-hmm. David, have you seen the movie Dharma Brothers? I haven't. <laughs> Tell me about that. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, movie that's uh, made by, you know, Vipassana is a meditation tradition, actually, that I, that I um, uh, go to. And they, they're... It was a movie about Vipassana meditation teachers who went to a prison in, I think, it was in the in the southern part of the United States, and worked with um, uh, people who were life lifetimes uh, serving lifetime sentences, and for a pr- pretty hard thing. And they uh, and I think uh, it was wonderful to hear how they you know were using meditation and mindfulness. And the, uh, towards the end, uh, one of the prisoners said. Um, you know, no ego, no problem. He meant that <laughs> that, that um, you know you, you can physically imprison someone, but you can't mentally imprison them if you choose to um, uh, be a free person and and choose your, your values and live in a valued way. That uh, uh, that that prison has no relevance to that. There's so much truth in what you just said right there, Joanne, and it's it's even helping. Gosh. When you, when you shared that with me, I thought so much of the guys that I work with just in this week alone where being a prisoner of their own mind can be so debilitating. But when they realize just how much freedom can be found in the space of choice, mm-hmm. is, is, is freedom in and of itself. David, if we, uh, we're getting to the end of our program, and I'd like to ask you for some advice for our listeners um, there could be people who have relatives or friends that are imprisoned. Um, what advice could you give us? Any time that you can be present and just kind of check at the door when you are judging someone, mm-hmm. to be open-minded. The law has judged these individuals. They don't. They don't need other people to judge them. I'm sure on their own their own mindset, they already feel they're being judged even more so. Mm-hmm. Approach them with openness and how you can help them while they're in these areas. I think that's just such a powerful tool right there and it reaffirms the connection of family. That's important. We had uh, last week Paul Gilbert um, on our program and he he was talking about compassion is easy for you know people that you love. It's The courageous compassion is for people that you oh. have trouble with. You know, uh, and to show self-compassion is even more difficult. Guys in in my group, when they've had a an emotional uh, focus, and they might be sharing intimate details of their past, even recognizing the fact that they've done some heavy emotional lifting, always uh, is a reminder for me to tell them: take care of yourselves, be kind to one another in the day. Even just saying that. Mm-hmm. It brings them into direct focus of the need to uh, be mindful of taking care of our needs, too. Thank you so much, David, for being on our program today. It's been my honor. Thank you, Joanne. 
You've been listening to Dr. David Brillhart. David is a clinical psychologist specializing in ACT in forensic and correction settings. Amongst his areas of expertise includes a 20-month groundbreaking pilot study using ACT as a treatment alternative to anger management with sexually violent persons. David now works at a state psychiatric hospital treating high-risk special needs sex offender patients. Uh, Working with these difficult populations has afforded David the opportunity to help clients in the community navigate life challenges. You can read more about David and his practice at his website, which you can find by clicking on his name on this week's act, Taking Her to Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website button in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. You may also see her books, The Art of Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Living Beyond Pain, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Values in Action, and Epilepsy, a Behavior Medicine Approach to Assessment and Treatment in Children. All of these are found easily by clicking the cover or going to Amazon.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.